Let's go ahead and we'll turn to God's Word this morning, Zechariah 1, verses 67 through 79. And let me pray before we read God's Word. Our Father, amidst all the busyness that comes with this season, we pray that even in this moment that you would quiet and still our hearts and our minds. And we do pray that you would take your eternal truths and you would write them upon our weak and frail and fragile hearts. Give us attentiveness to your divine truth, and to your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is the holy and errant word of God, Luke 1, verses 67 through 79. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Redemption is always tied to forgiveness of sin. Many of you will be familiar with this story that I want to read to you briefly this morning. I don't usually read something of this length, but it's incredibly personal and well-written, and I was thinking about summarizing it and thought, I just cannot do it justice. So I want to read to you what this woman wrote in 1975, somewhere around there. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that there's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People 
stood up in silence, and silence collected their wraps, and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes and the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were both sent. And now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. Fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, again the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly... Mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I'd never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And of course, there's the story of Corrie Ten Boom. She had spoken on the forgiveness of God, as she says glibly, though I doubt that. Knowing her and having read her stories... By the end of that evening, she had a new appreciation for God's love. 
She had a new appreciation for God's love for her. We could say this morning the tender mercy of God. She said, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Why? Why was it that moment that she had such an intense understanding of the mercy and the love of God? I dare say it's because she had a new view of what the forgiveness of God to her cost him. And she intensely understood it and in a deeper way. Redemption costs. Forgiveness costs. Redemption isn't a word we often use, and yet it may be one of the most important English words for, for you and I. Zechariah's song this morning speaks of redemption and the great need for you and I to have the forgiveness of sins. All of us have this need, and, and I want to look at this idea this morning. What is redemption? And then secondly, why do you and I and every person who has ever lived need redemption? And then thirdly, what was the cost of that redemption? Maybe this morning, like Corey Tim Boom, we'll have a new and, and a fresh understanding of, of God's love and of His tender mercy. Last week, we looked at the first of our songs. It was a song that Mary sang upon the conception of this child in her womb, and you'll remember that she began that song with praise to God. And so Zechariah here, in the exact same way, he begins his song or his prophecy with praise to God. Mary's song was called the Magnificat. What has Zechariah's song here has come down to us in history as being called the Benedictus because of that that first word, blessed, when it's translated into Latin, is, is the word Benedictus. So this is the Benedictus. And that child is in Elizabeth's womb. You will remember that Mary has gone to visit Elizabeth, and in Mary's womb is the Christ, and she is going to visit Elizabeth, and didn't know at the time, it seems, but Elizabeth has a child in her womb, and that child in her womb is the one who is to prepare the way for the Christ, to prepare the way for the Lord. And when Elizabeth gives birth to this child, a controversy erupts. Elizabeth gives birth to a son, and the women that are gathered around her want to know what they are to name this child, and Elizabeth says he is to be named John. And these women will have nothing to do with that, because she's breaking the rules, she's breaking the tradition. There's nobody in Elizabeth's family that has the name John. It would have been normal to, to name this son born, this firstborn son after the father and name him Zechariah or at least some family name. And so these women, they won't take Elizabeth's naming of the child. They, they run off to Zechariah. But Zechariah has a problem. He hasn't been able to speak for nine months. Remember that when the angel comes to Zechariah and says that your wife shall conceive a child. This one who will be a prophet of the Most High. Zechariah expresses some doubt. And so the angel, in a way, disciplining him and also showing him that, look, this is going to come to fruition, he says, you will not be able to speak. And he silences him. 
So Zechariah, for nine months, any time that he wanted to communicate anything to anybody, he had to write it on a tablet. And so these women, they come to Zechariah and they hand him a tablet and, and they say to Zechariah, what is to be the name of this child? And Zechariah says his name is John. Because that is what the angel had told them they must name this child. His name is John. And immediately Luke says his mouth opened and his tongue was loosed. And when his mouth is opened and his tongue is loosed, the very first thing Zechariah does is bless God. Give him praise. Verse 64. He began blessing God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, he says in verse 68. He's celebrating God. Why? Because he says God has visited and redeemed his people. God has entered into the world. He has moved into the neighborhood. He has taken up residence. Why? To redeem his people. For redemption. What is redemption? It's a word that is used throughout the Scriptures. It has the idea of purchasing something, buying something. It's especially used to speak of deliverance and and giving freedom to someone or something. It has in most cases both this negative and this positive aspect that you are being bought, purchased from something, freed from something, and you are also being freed unto something. It's most often used in the Scriptures to speak about slavery and manumission, the taking of slaves that are in bonds and setting them free. This was a word that was very common among the Jews throughout time. They knew this word redemption. Zechariah is a godly Jew and he knows the stories of God's redemption in the past. And, And as he sings, he is by the Holy Spirit calling that redemption to mind before all these Jews that are listening to the song. It's no mistake that he uses this word. Blessed be the God of Israel who has visited and redeemed His people. As a Jew, you you hear that word redeemed or redemption and, and your mind immediately races to one event, to one moment, to one grand epochal story in all the Old Testament Scriptures. The Exodus. And John, or Zechariah here, is prophesying that John, this, this child that is to be born, is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And then this Messiah, this Christ who is to come, he's linking it together with the Exodus. He's binding them together. A monumental event in the history of the Jewish people. In Exodus 6, God says to Israel, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And he did. And then throughout the New Testament, the New Testament writers will, will hearken back to the Exodus and compare Christ's ministry, Christ's life and Christ's ministry to the Exodus itself. So you see that Christ in Hebrews is called a prophet that is greater than Moses. And 
We could turn to 1 Corinthians and we would see there that he is the Passover lamb or that he is the rock which accompanied the church in his journey through the wilderness. Or heaven is pictured as the land of Canaan in Hebrews 4. The exodus in the Old Testament was but a shadow. It was a type of the redemption that was to come in Christ. And Zechariah is linking it here. As we think back to the, the exodus and you think about that redemption, they, they were in bondage in Egypt. They were made to be slaves and they are making bricks for Pharaoh and for all of his construction projects. They are owned and they are dominated and they are controlled and they are forced by Pharaoh's hand and his taskmasters to do whatever it is that he says. It's not just that their bodies were in slavery. It's not just that they were in physical slavery, though. They were also in spiritual slavery because they were in a land of darkness. They were in a land of idolatry and in a land that was just filled with sin on every side. And they needed to be freed. They needed redemption. They needed something outside themselves. And God came. He came down to rescue them. That's what He says in Exodus 3. I have surely seen the affliction of My people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. He redeemed them. And Zechariah, with his first words, after, after nine months of having his tongue glued to the roof of, his, roof of his mouth, celebrates the birth of his son and the prophet of the Most High, as he calls him in verse 76, with proclaiming that God has once again visited and redeemed his people. This is now even a greater redemption. How? Through the birth of the Messiah, the Christ. He says he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Verse 69, the the horn in the Old Testament or in Middle Eastern culture was the, the symbol of strength. So here is a strong Savior. This was the redemption that was promised to David. And a strong Savior would come from His line that would reign on His throne forever. And as Zechariah says, the holy prophets spoke of in ancient times, a a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. He says in verse 73, the one whom His Son is preparing the way before is the Lord, is the answer to all these promises. And what He brings in His person Zechariah is saying is redemption. But our second point, why do we need redemption? We aren't in Egypt. We aren't in physical slavery. But just as a, a child born to a Jewish mother in Egypt at that time was was born immediately into a world of darkness and a world of idolatry and immediately was born into that world as a slave of it. 
So you and I, upon our immediate birth, we are born into this dark world and we are slaves unto the sin. Surrounded on every side. When Corey Timboom went to speak in Germany, she had one message, God forgives sins. Redemption has come in the person of Christ. And the heart of Christmas is the good news that God has visited His people. That He's visited His people to redeem us from the hands of our enemies. But, but to rejoice in this truth, for you and I to, to really revel in this truth that the Messiah has come, that the Christ has been born into this world, a Savior from David's line, the promise to Abraham, this one that the prophet spoke about. For us to rejoice in that, that a Redeemer has come, have to recognize our sinfulness and our need for redemption. Think about that, that German SS officer at that concentration camp, the guard. It's it is absolutely easy to see that he needs redemption. It's quite easy to see that he needs forgiveness of his sins. A few of us would have faulted Corey Ten Boom if after he reached out his hand to her that she had not reached out her hand to him and had just walked away. We would have said that's understandable. But she understood that she was a sinner, that she was in need of God's redeeming even as the man that stood before her. God in Christ can and will and does forgive all our sins no matter how great He throws them into the sea, as Corey Ten Boom said. I think about a, a passage in the Gospels where Jesus goes to the country of the Gerasenes and that demoniac comes up to Him, that man that is filled with a legion of demons. And it is fascinating because... They know who Jesus is. They know that He is Lord. And they're afraid that He's he's going to crush them. And so they yield to Him. They say, look, just if you're going to cast us out, cast us out into those pigs. Because they know that whatever He says, whatever He decrees, what, whatever He commands, they must obey. Because He's Lord. And that demoniac that would run naked in the graveyard and he would, he would take pot shards and he would cut himself. And he is, he is controlled and he is dominated by this legion of demons. So He is. And when Christ sends those demons, that, those enemies of that man into that herd of pigs, they rush off the cliff and they go into the sea. And they're gone. No longer to bother that man. He's set free. I love how the gospel says that he was then in his right mind. And he was rejoicing. They're gone. They're they're in the sea. 
no longer have control over you, no longer have dominion over you, no, no longer can, can force you. Zechariah knows that salvation at its core must deal with the forgiveness of sins, my sins. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Lost in what? Lost in sin. Zechariah says in verse 79 that we sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. We sit in darkness. It's the same kind of imagery that's used there in Psalm 1. It has the idea of you're not fighting against it. You and I in this world, we're not fighting against sin. We're not reaching out to God. We're we're, we're comfortable in it. We just take a seat in it. We dwell in it. And, And death looms there, he says. The shadow of death is there and it just looms. And they hate us, says He says there in verse 71, and they seek to destroy us. But here's the beauty. God visits and redeems His people. God visits and redeems His people. Why? Because we're lovely? No. Because when He redeems us, He knows that we will be the perfect servants on earth. Never. Not in this life. Zechariah says in verse 78, in a wonderful way, God visits and redeems His people because of His tender mercy. I love the kind of juxtaposition of verse 77 and verse 78. Verse 77, their sin. To give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins. And then verse 78, the tender mercy of God. The sin is ours, the mercy is His. What belongs to me is sins. What belongs to Him is mercy. We need redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. What Zechariah sees and sings and prophesies is that God has demonstrated His mercy in the coming of this Messiah, that light has come, that salvation has entered into the world, and it is possible because of His tender mercy. But it's not only possible, but it's actually secured by His tender mercy. The payment is made. It's made in full. As we said at the beginning, forgiveness is costly. It it costs someone to to forgive another. It, it costs. I imagine that's why Corey Tinboom was so struck with the love and the mercy of God in that moment in a way that she had never experienced it before because she was having to extend forgiveness to a man that had violated her and, and done un, incredible offense to her and been party to killing her very sister. Maybe there in that moment, it seems like she had just a little more of a shadow of an understanding of what it costs God to forgive those who had done him even greater offense, even greater injury. 
The offended one shows us tender mercy. You know, there's that uh, in Psalm 51, after David commits murder, he, he murders Uriah. He commits sin with Bathsheba, adultery, and don't know how far that goes, but clearly he was exercising. He is the king. He's in authority. And here he takes this young woman and he sleeps with her. And then in Psalm 51, it's, it's interesting that as David is led to confession by Nathan the prophet, and as he's led to, to repentance, he says there in Psalm 51, he says, against you, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, David says. I remember early in the Christian life just thinking, that, that, that does not make any sense to me. He killed Uriah. Didn't he sin against him? He had sex with Bathsheba outside of marriage. Didn't he sin against her? And yet he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's because I think David in his mind, he, he understands that, that it is a grave offense against these people and yet the even graver offense is that he has committed cosmic rebellion against God. That whatever sin he commits against another, he commits in even a grander and greater way against God. Because he decreed you should not do these things. And these people were created in his image. And yet God grants him forgiveness. Salvation comes in the person of Christ and its foundation is rooted in the very compassion of God for His people. But it costs Him. And this is our third point. Redemption requires, requires payment. And what was that cost? It meant the forsaking of His very own Son. Imagine that Zechariah had no inclination of this as he is... He is singing this song, or as he is prophesying this truth, he, he is just celebrating the fact that here is one that is coming forth from the line of David, this Messiah that has been promised that prophets have spoken about for ages and ages, going all the way back to Abraham, that promise that was made to him. And Zechariah, he's just elated. Finally, that this Messiah was come, and he probably had no understanding whatsoever what it meant for that Messiah. He was born that he would die. But the Holy Spirit that filled him did. And I think maybe that is part of the reason that Luke there at the very beginning says that the Holy Spirit filled Zechariah. And that prophecy came forward from him as he was filled with the Spirit. I, and I think about 1 Peter 1, and there in 1 Peter 1, Peter presses home the point that this Holy Spirit, he says, this one who prophesies salvation, that he is the Spirit of Christ. As that God sent his Son into this world to redeem his people, knowing the price that it was going to cause. The Spirit 
conceive that child in the womb of the Virgin Mary knowing the price that it would cost to redeem His people. The Son was born into this world and came in flesh knowing the cost that it would be to redeem His people. It wasn't lost on them. It's more costly than anything ever purchased or anything that ever shall be purchased. Our redemption is costly because our sin is great. His birth and His death, they are eternally tied together. And now we come to this Christmas time and we think about the manger, good. We think about the angels and we think about the shepherds and we think about the wise men, good. Let's think about all those things. And our mind should also run to the cross. Because the birth only makes sense in light of the cross. And the cross has rightfully become a beautiful symbol to us. We will make gold medallions out of it and pendants and hang them from our necks. And we will make them into bumper stickers and put them on the back of cars. And they will become wall art and they'll decorate our home. It's become a symbol of beauty and I think rightfully so. It's also ghastly. It's ghastly. Man being stripped naked, being laid out on a beam. Nails crunching through flesh and muscle and tendons and bone. And then that cross being erected and him hanging there under the weight of his own body. So pulling him down that it is hard to breathe and it just gets harder and harder to breathe. And then a soldier pierces his side and crown of thorns upon his head. And yet that doesn't summarize the ghastliness of the cross or the agony of the cross or the payment of the cross. The price of our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, it could never be pictured by us just talking about it in physical terms. It can never be pictured in movies. It can never be pictured in works of art. It can never be pictured in paintings. Because it can only depict the physical. The physical was nothing compared to the spiritual. I appreciate Donald McLeod. He articulates the price of our redemption paid. He says this. He died the death which sin deserves. But it was more than mere death as we understand it. It was what Paul elsewhere calls death with a sting. Not simply the separation of soul and body, but the black hole of separation from God and abandonment by His heavenly Father. The overwhelming sense of being sin. Naked and unprotected in the presence of the holy. It was the descent into hell, which I take to mean on the cross. He experienced hell in every possible way. Which contemplated in Gethsemane almost unmanned him. It was the abyss, the absolute zero of emptying himself. In his own eyes, he was forsaken. In human eyes, he was a reject. 
In God's eyes, he was such as the divine could not look on or listen to or deliver. He was delivered into the hands of our enemies so that, as Zechariah says, we might be delivered from the hands of our enemies. Sin, death, hell, Satan and his dominion, darkness. He frees us from them so that we might, as Zechariah says in verse 74 and 75, serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. We were praying before the service, and one of us prayed, you know, as we sit here, if it wasn't for God being our Redeemer, you and I would be struck dead thinking that we can approach a holy God and come before Him and come into His presence. We would be struck dead. But He's a redeeming God. He leads us out of Egypt and He leads us into a land that is flowing with milk and honey. He takes off our bonds. He takes off our chains. And and He sets us free for freedom's sake where we are free to serve Him in righteousness and holiness as, as Zechariah says. He experiences darkness, our Lord and our Christ, so that He can give us light, verse 79. And He endured wrath so that our feet might be set unto the way of peace. Zechariah closes the song. It's a costly redemption. But it was absolutely necessary because of the depth and the weight and the awfulness of our sin. To truly appreciate Christmas, you and I have to come as much as we can to grips with the depth of our sin. Say, well, doesn't that take joy away from Christmas? No, it makes it sparkle. The more you and I understand the depth of our sin, the more we understand the height and the extent of this tender mercy which the Lord has condescended to bless us with and to lift us up. You know, Corey Ten Boom. It is, it is an unbelievable story of all the people in Germany. How could it be that she is speaking in a room and there is one of the men that was a prison guard and it's there that she has to grant forgiveness to this man? It's just a... It's one of the most gripping true stories you'll ever read. Like, how... how? How amazing was was her mercy. And yet, you know, if you contrast that, and it was God in that room, it would have looked totally different. As great as Corey Ten Boom's mercy was and the forgiveness of sins that she granted that day to, to that man, it's not a very good picture of God. 
Because if God had been in that room, he would have, like the prodigal son's father, he would have ran to that man as soon as he saw him. And there wouldn't have been a hand that is outreached, but he would have wrapped him up in his everlasting arms. And he would have immediately said, I love you and you are forgiven. And that man wouldn't have had to first reach out his hand and ask for forgiveness because he couldn't and he wouldn't and he won't. It is incredibly tender mercy. And I pray that as you and I, as we go through this week and putting together presents and we're thinking about all the food that we're going to make or eat, better yet, you and I realize that the incarnation of the Son of God as Redeemer into this world is tender mercy that outdoes anything you and I can imagine. It is our only hope. Sinners in bondage and desperate need of freedom. And he secures it. And it cost him greatly. So, like Zechariah, I think there should be all kinds of blessing that comes forth from our lips. All kinds of soul. Let's pray. Lord and our God, we are thankful that you are a God of redemption. That you promised the coming of a Messiah to save your people from their sins. And you fulfilled your promise. And how you even exceeded the expectations of those prophets of old. The very Son of God would become flesh for us. Sinners who have been in cosmic rebellion. That we might have forgiveness of sins. Salvation forevermore. Ah, how can we not give you praise? How can we not erupt in song like Zechariah and Mary and Simeon and the angels? You are worthy of all glory and all of our thanksgiving. In Christ's name we pray.